0: Imputed righteousness is a biblical concept. As we put our faith in Christ, God clothes us in Christ's perfect righteousness. But that is not the righteousness that is in view here. Jesus, in verse 20, is speaking about our actual obedience to his command. Our ethic, our behavior, our heart orientation our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And you'll remember last week I explained, Jesus there is making a statement that pertains to quality, not quantity. In its essence, our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees because Our righteousness begins with faith in Christ, and that makes all the difference. As we put our faith in Christ, it makes all the difference. God gives us a new heart, we experience the new birth by his grace, and now we can obey in a manner that is entirely different from that of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. With that in our purview then, Jesus goes into the first example. What does this greater righteousness look like on a day-by-day basis? And he deals with the topic of anger. Now, similar to last week, I want to give you a sentence up front that I have written to try and summarize what Jesus is teaching here. I'll give to you the sentence that I think gets to the, the essence of Jesus' teaching, and then we'll spend the morning working through it as a means of getting into this text. In summary, Jesus here is teaching that we should not succumb to anger. Rather, we should pursue peace with zeal and urgency. Don't succumb to anger. Rather, pursue peace with zeal and urgency. That is the essence of Jesus' teaching, and my desire is that the Lord would lead us in paths of peace. As we're confronted with Jesus' words this morning concerning anger My prayer is that the Lord would lead us in paths of obedience. I would ask you to pray with me. As we work through these six examples, allow our study in God's word to direct your prayers. My prayer is that God would be working in this church so as to render us yet more holy, yet more obedient to Christ's commands, beginning with his teaching on anger. So beginning then with this introductory clause, don't succumb to anger, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. It's important up front that we understand exactly what Jesus is doing here and what he's not doing. Evidently, he's pushing back against something. You've heard it said, in this case, you shall not murder, but I say to you by way of contrast. This section of the Sermon on the Mount, these six examples, are often referred to as the six antitheses. The six antitheses, anti, pushing against, thesis, pushing against some thesis, six times over. Sadly, it's often been misunderstood. The suggestion is that Jesus is pushing back on or undermining or supplanting the Old Testament law. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. That was Moses' teaching, but let me offer the right understanding. There are problems with that understanding of the text. Jesus, of all people, would not contradict God's inspired word. And more to the point, we just studied... The very fact that Jesus has said, I did not come to abolish it, rather to uphold it. I want to uphold and affirm and revere the Old Testament Scriptures. So Jesus is pushing back, but not against the law, at least not as it was given by Moses. As we look at the quotation here, Jesus is quoting... From Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, the other place where we read of the Ten Commandments. But what's interesting in the coming weeks as we work through other examples, the quotation won't be as verbatim as we find it today. In other examples, when Jesus says, You have heard it said, and then he gives a quotation, we find sometimes the quotation works in completely the opposite direction to the law as it was given, which is an indication to us that Jesus here is not intending to bring the law per se into view. He's not seeking to undermine the ministry of Moses and correct the law as it was given, but as it has been interpreted by the Pharisees, and taught to Jesus' hearers. You remember last week, there was a very clear anti-Pharisaical edge to Jesus' words, 17 through 20, and that carries on now into these six examples. What is Jesus pushing back against? He's pushing back against the Pharisees' interpretation of the law and subsequent teaching to Jesus' hearers. Most likely, if you were a lay person in Jesus' day, you actually would have no access to the law yourself. You don't have a, a Bible in your hands to pick up and read, but you are fully dependent upon the Pharisees teaching you what the law says. And the Pharisees had picked up the law. They'd put a fence around it. They'd forged their interpretation of it and passed that on to Jesus' hearers, and Jesus wants to break down that interpretation. So these are antitheses, but not against the Scriptures, rather against the misaligned teaching of the Pharisees. And in this case, it would seem to be that the Pharisees had taught upholding the commandment, you shall not murder, they had taught that in isolation from any appeal to your heart. As if to say, if you manage to get through your life without murdering anyone, you've honored the Lord. You have fulfilled the law. If you're free from the charge of murder, then you are upright before God. And Jesus comes in and says, let me tell you what is really going on as that commandment is issued. And I do believe if we were to take the time in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 this morning and look specifically at the broader context and see this commandment in its broader context, we would see that appeal to the heart, God always was aiming at the heart as he issued these commandments. So Jesus comes in and he says, you think that through mere obedience externally to this commandment, you have upheld the law. Let me offer a correction. Verse 22, everyone who's angry is guilty. Everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. If you insult your brother, if you say you fool, now certainly those terms in Jesus' day would have been highly offensive. To call someone a fool, you're rendering against them a, an offensive term that invokes their whole being, mind, body, spirit, you fool would have been a very offensive term, but the point is it's not murder. Jesus is bringing into view actions which are not physical murder, and he says that is what renders you guilty before a holy God. So think about how his three examples here would have astounded his hearers and challenged the common interpretation of the commandment. First of all, very simply, the fact that he points at the heart issue of anger. It cannot be restricted to mere external conformity to the law. Anger is the underlying issue that renders you guilty. Secondly, notice the judgment that he speaks of. There may be a progression of thought here as he speaks about in the first example, you being liable to judgment there, possibly the notion of a, a council set up within a village. Maybe the elders of that village would come together and deliberate. But then it seems to go up in its consequences. He talks about the council. Same word referred, used to refer to the Sanhedrin, who so a more formal congregation now. And then finally, in his third example, he says, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. The word that Jesus uses there is not actually the word for hell. It is a word speaking of a physical place, the Valley of Gehenna. The Valley of Gehenna has a history to it, which is significant for us to understand what Jesus is intending. Originally, centuries back, it was the location where child sacrifices would be conducted to honor the god Molech. When Josiah came about in the Old Testament and instigated his reforms, he was so disgusted by what had been happening at Gehenna that he turned it into a place where refuse would be burnt. So it now becomes a place where the trash for the city would be taken to and burnt. And because there was much trash to burn, it became a place of continual burning. There was always a fire in the valley of Gehenna. And the people that heard Jesus' words would have known this. And so symbolically, what he is emphasizing by using this term is the ongoing eternal nature of the punishment, If you are angry in your heart, you are subject to judgment. Of what nature? Of an everlasting, ongoing, never-ending punishment. That's how serious this is. And then thirdly, as Jesus challenges the Pharisees' interpretation of the commandment, notice what he doesn't say. Jesus does not draw attention to the circumstances that have prompted the anger. And I think that's intentional. Jesus does not give any details as to why you might be angry with your brother, why you might call him a fool. You see, my guess is that you would agree that anger is a sin, that we shouldn't be prone to anger. But in reality, we all have Precious places, hidden in our hearts. And when those places come under attack, now my anger is justified. Jesus doesn't make any mention of what prompts the anger. Rather intentionally, he simply teaches that anger is liable to judgment. The crowds would have been astounded at this teaching. All they had heard is the pharisaical interpretation of the commandment, you shall not murder, don't murder in your good. Jesus says, you think that's it? You think that mere external conformity gets you off the hook? There is a much more pervasive issue, one of the heart, and it's called anger. At the end of the sermon, you can just turn over to chapter 7 verse 28, you see, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. When they heard this teaching of Jesus, they would have been astonished. And if we're honest, so should we be. As we really come to wrestle with what Jesus is saying here and how subtle is the sin, how muted could be the anger which Jesus invokes, it doesn't necessarily have to lead to an explosive action. It could be, as with the first example, a low-level grumbling of the heart, Remain fully internal, Jesus says that renders you guilty. And so we start to look for ways to evade the teaching because it's so challenging. Are there any exceptions? What about this? And what about this? How about this? And I would say there is one exception. That would be the category that we often refer to as righteous anger. In the Bible, we see that God was angry. In the Old Testament, many times we read of that. In the New Testament, we see Jesus turning over the tables. He was angry around the temple when he saw what they had done with the temple system. And we're taught in scriptures like Psalm 4, in your anger do not sin. Paul picks up on that in Ephesians chapter 4. Be angry, yet don't sin. And so that leads us to appeal to this category that we often call righteous anger. But let me caution you before you appeal to it to justify your anger. We need to be careful. I have found Those who so quickly appeal to righteous anger to excuse their behavior really have done no heart probing, no soul searching to examine whether their anger truly is in response to an assault on the character of God or whether it is coming out of their own personal pride. Notwithstanding the reality of sin on the part of the offender, that does not necessarily mean that your anger is righteous. Just because you see a sin on the part of the offender that is in some way attacking the holiness of God and his character, that does not necessarily infer that your response is righteous. You can respond to that sin with your own anger that is saturated in pride. It doesn't make it inherently righteous. I think it's sobering to think about the facts that are examples of righteous anger in the Bible center on God the Father and God the Son. I struggle to look like Jesus in most areas of my life. So I don't imagine that I would look like him in my anger. Most often, our anger is the kind that Jesus is speaking of here. It is an anger that is rooted in pride. It comes about because something hasn't gone your way. Your circumstances aren't as you had planned. Something comes into your space that you didn't invite, and now you respond because your pride has been damaged. And you respond by giving way to, succumbing to, anger. And it may be low-level grumblings in your heart. It might be explosive in its behavior, but it always, always leads to some kind of destruction, destructive behavior. Notice the progression of thought in Jesus' three examples Beginning with anger without any further detail, the next thing that we see is that the, the person, the, the angry one, is now speaking insults against his brother. Harsh insults. Anger that is rooted in pride leads to destructive behavior. Behavior that doesn't honor God and causes harm to his people. We see this kind of anger all the way through scripture, beginning with Cain. His pride was offended. He offered an offering to God. It was not accepted. His brothers was. He's jealous. His pride is offended. They speak in the field. What did they say? We don't know. I wish I could know what went on in that conversation. We're not told, but some words were spoken. And the next thing that happens, Cain rises up and he kills his brother. He succumbs to anger because his pride is offended and it leads to destructive behavior. Or consider the Israelites, a very different looking kind of anger. As they're led out of Egypt, they very quickly forget their bondage and they start to complain, to grumble. Their pride has been offended. Why? Because things aren't panning out the way that they would want. God is testing them. He's disciplining them. They don't have everything they desire in the wilderness, and so they grumble. It's very low level, but to be sure, it leads to destructive behavior. Specifically, in that case, they resist and they work against God's appointed leadership over them. We see it in our own lives. In the home, there is often much pride that is being hurt, And we succumb to anger. You go into a marriage with certain expectations just because that's the way you've known life to be. This is how we've always done Christmas in my family. (laughs) And now you're in a relationship, a lifelong relationship with someone else who didn't do Christmas that way. And so your expectations aren't met and now your pride is injured. And so you give in to, you succumb to anger, and it leads to destructive behavior. Anger destroys marriages. I've counseled with couples wherein the anger sits with the woman and with the husband. There is none that are immune. I've counseled with couples where the woman would so quickly be offended, her pride would be injured at the slightest fault, so as to make her violent in the home. And with men, many, many times, we see the husband succumbing to anger. And I think often it's because sin is working itself out specifically within his domain as the leader. He understands intuitively, I am to lead this marriage and then sin has its way and he becomes a tyrant. And he wields his anger to get what he wants so as to not allow his pride to be injured. We see anger in parenting relationships. You talk about expectations not being met. But you see, that's not the point. Your job as a parent that we so quickly lose sight of is to so shape this child to point them towards the gospel of Christ and so shape them that they are ready to leave your home to be a blessing and to contribute to society. Your job is to shape them, and yet we lose sight of that so that expectations aren't met time and time again at every stage, and our pride suffers injury. And as our pride is injured, we succumb to anger, and it leads to destructive behavior. So many... Parenting relationships are destroyed by a pattern of anger. We see it in the church. Now, in the church, it typically looks different because we are in our best behavior and we can't let people see that we're actually sinners. And so whereas in the home, we take our loved ones for granted and we give full vent to our anger. Now in the church... We keep it under wraps, but that isn't to say it isn't there. As your pride has been injured, things haven't gone the way that you would want. This church doesn't do everything that you would desire. Your pride is injured. You give way to a low-level, persistent grumbling in your heart, and rest assured, it is destructive. It's not necessarily leading to explosive behavior or words or actions in the congregation But you are conducting yourself in a way that is not in pursuit of unity. Choosing to be elsewhere on a Sunday. Choosing to avoid certain people because you have an issue with them. Your behavior has now become destructive. Or we see it outside of the church. And this is the easiest one to get away with because now no one can see me. I'm not in my home and I'm not in the church. I'm simply on the freeway and I can give full vent to my anger. When the traffic comes, someone cuts me up. I'm fully permitted to behave in this way. The question is how do we quash the anger in our hearts? How can we obey our Lord? and not succumb to anger. It shows itself up everywhere in our lives. How can we be those who are not given to anger, but exhibit the peace befitting of a disciple? How do we exhibit this greater righteousness? In a minute, we'll see that Jesus goes on to give a a pattern of putting off and putting on. This is the behavior you're to follow. This will be the second portion of the text. But before we go there, first and foremost, we resist the temptation to anger by simply allowing the love of God to be shed abroad in our hearts. What is it that makes the righteousness of his disciples different It is that it is founded upon faith in Christ. And so in order to be obedient to Jesus' command that we would not be angry, we have to be those that are set upon the gospel of our salvation, which very much is a dynamic, a drama involving anger. I wonder if you've ever thought of the gospel in these terms. You were an object of God's wrath. And rightly so, an object of his anger, and it rested upon you because of your sin, and it is only the cross of Jesus Christ that has taken away his wrath from upon you and caused him to set his love upon you. You see, this is the the great exchange, at least in terms of God's anger, is to understand that because of the death of His Son, His wrath is no longer resting upon you, but His love is covering you. You once were an object of His wrath, now you are an object of His love, and the only difference is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is what has affected this in your life. And as you meditate upon the gospel and you understand what Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 5, that the love of God has been shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom has been given to us, that is when you can finally overcome the temptation to anger. If you are here this morning, not in Christ, not having put faith in Christ, never having received Christ, Understand you will never, ever, ever have mastery over your anger. It will not happen until you submit to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts. And when that does happen, now you do not need to be one who succumbs to anger. Now you can, you can marvel on a daily basis, that you were once an object of wrath, now you're an object of infinite, never-ending love. And in so much as that exchange has happened in your life, you can do whatever you want to me. You can cut me up on the freeway. My pride is not going to take offense. You can bring your expectations into this relationship My pride is not going to be offended. You can say whatever you want against me. I won't respond with anger. Why? Because I was an object of wrath. And now I'm an object of love because of Christ. So anger really has no place in my life. That's how you exhibit this greater righteousness. I remember some years ago listening to the preacher, Jerry Bridges, very much in his old age. He was in a wheelchair. They had lowered the pulpit for him. He was speaking in a large marquee in the UK on the topic of respectable sins. And you could have heard a pin drop as he just shared his wisdom And he was transparent that morning as he said that he had awoken early to go over his notes again and to print them from his laptop. And he said, I opened my laptop and it wasn't responding, wasn't doing what I wanted it to do, and I got annoyed. When it finally came to life, he said, I tried to print it and it wasn't printing. And I got annoyed. And he said, this behavior from me is entirely unacceptable. It's anger. And we're not to be given to anger. And even his transparency is testimony to the love of God being shed abroad in his heart. Jesus says, don't succumb to anger. How? It's through the gospel. Through the gospel and then... He moves on to give these illustrations that constitute very much a putting off and a putting on principle, verses 23 through 26. Moving on now, don't succumb to anger. Second half of the sentence, rather pursue peace with zeal and urgency. Don't succumb to anger, but do... Pursue peace. How? With zeal and urgency. And Jesus teaches this by way of two illustrations. The first illustration, verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar, remember and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and come Then to offer your gift. Jesus is teaching very simply that we don't give in to anger, we're not characterized by anger, but rather we are those who seek peace and reconciliation. But notice the zeal with which Jesus commends us to pursue peace. We see that zeal first and foremost because in his illustration he permits and commends the interruption of worship. Now, throughout Scripture, worship is prioritized. Throughout Scripture, God makes plain, what does he require of his people? That they worship him. You make it an absolute priority on the Lord's day when his people gather that you would be here Sunday morning and Sunday evening. There are appointed times for worship. We're going to be here. Why? Because for many reasons, not least because scripture shows us that is to be a priority. Except, says Jesus, when there is peace to be made. When there is an issue that persists, you have to interrupt your worship. It is that important. He then shows us the zeal with which we're to be peacemakers by appealing to the notion of offering the sacrifice. You've probably heard it taught, and it's entirely correct. Within this illustration, his hearers would be thinking of the temple in Jerusalem. That's where you go to make these offerings, and yet they are in Galilee. So now they're interpreting this illustration by way of an 80-mile trek. And Jesus offers no footnotes, no excuses or qualifications. Go be reconciled. With zeal, make the journey. The The 80 miles is absolutely worth it. You have to seek peace. But perhaps most strikingly, the zeal with which Jesus commends his disciples to seek peace is noted by how the dynamic has shifted within the illustration. So I wonder if you noticed that it is a familiar text. So we have to be careful Jesus's illustration says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. So think about that. In his hypothetical scenario, the you, the worshiper, is not the one who is angry. In Jesus' illustration, the worshiper is the one that has offended, meaning implied the angry one is the brother. He's the one that has the anger problem. And Jesus says, you as the worshiper put down everything and go and seek peace. Go be reconciled to him. He's angry in his heart. Go fix it. It is radical what Jesus teaches us simply by shifting the dynamic of the relationship. We would expect him to say, if you're angry in your heart when you come to worship, fix the anger in your heart. He says, if you know someone else's, go address the issue. And to be clear, by virtue of his illustration, he's not acquitting the angry one of any fault. He's not saying the one who is angry, who has been offended, is acquitted of any responsibility. Elsewhere, the scriptures will speak of that. And so ideally, we might say, if this illustration were to be played out, ideally, what we would see happening is that the two come together halfway. The one angry recognizes, I can't keep persisting in this. I have to fix it. I'm going back. The one worshiping says, Jesus taught me it's my responsibility to go. And they meet in the middle and they're reconciled and they seek peace together. That's how it would play out. But the point, the reason Jesus shifts the dynamic and places the burden of responsibility in this example on the one who has offended is to show just how zealous we ought to be in seeking peace. It is not simply that you are responsible for the peace in your own heart. You are. But go beyond that. This is what kingdom-oriented, Christ-centered living looks like. How do I flourish as a disciple of Christ? I zealously pursue peace when it's in my own heart. When there is anger in my heart, I make war on it. And when I'm conscious of it, in another brother's heart, I go and see if I can't be a peacemaker to them. This is in exact accordance with the Beatitudes when Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers. He wants his disciples to zealously pursue peace, even in the hearts of others. So I wonder whether there is a relationship that you are mindful of this morning in which you need to be a peacemaker. I wonder if there is a relationship in your family or in church, at work, where you know that you have caused an offense. It's about the only time I'll ever say this. I give you full permission to leave church right now. (laughs) If I didn't see you this evening and you got in touch and you said, I'm sorry to miss evening worship, it's because I was reconciling with the brother. I would rejoice. Pursue peace with zeal. Pursue peace with urgency. Zeal and urgency. Here we move on to the second of the illustrations. It changes to a judicial setting. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So the scenario is different. It's now judicial. It's not the setting of worship. But the principle is the same, and certainly the dynamic is still the same. In the second illustration, Jesus persists with the dynamic of you as the offender, not as the angered party, you as the offender being the one to seek the reconciliation. This is what it looks like to be one of his disciples. Notice there is no mention of how your efforts might be received. It may be that you go to seek to be reconciled with one whom you have offended. There is no mention of how that effort will be received. It may not be received well. You entrust that to the Lord. Romans 12, verse eight, as far as it's possible on your part, be at peace with all men. That's your responsibility. The point of the second illustration is the urgency with which you should pursue that peace. There is this scenario. They're on their way to the court. It might very well be that the judge passes the verdict that renders you culpable and now in prison. And Jesus says you don't have all the time that you might think. So with urgency, pursue peace. Which is to say practically the second you're aware that you've offended. The minute that you become aware that you have been the source of someone else's anger, don't delay. Go seek to be a bringer of peace, a peacemaker. Don't sit on it. Don't let time pass. Don't think that you're serving anyone. By allowing a period of time to elapse, the principle is clear. With urgency, pursue peace. Because there are consequences if you don't. Jesus says in verse 26, Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. A number have interpreted this illustration in an allegorical manner, somehow rendering the accuser or the judge, I should say, to be God, and then thereby coming up with this notion of us being in a period of of paying off our debts, the Roman Catholic Church would teach the notion of purgatory, including by going to this scripture, and, and there really is no basis for that. I don't think here Jesus is speaking allegorically, at least not by creating a representation of God and eternal punishment or temporary punishment To take it at face value, it really is Jesus saying, if you don't pursue peace with urgency, who knows what the ongoing consequences may be. If you're not quick to be a peacemaker, the damage keeps compiling. The hurt keeps being felt. And you don't know what kind of lasting scars might be caused by your delay." Scars that are not quickly healed. Scars that exist between a brother and a sister, between those within the church, or outside of the church within families that don't go away quickly. So Jesus says, you were taught that by externally conforming to the sixth commandment, do not murder, you've done a good job. Let me teach you that anger is the issue. You mustn't be angry. You have to pursue peace with zeal and urgency. As we think upon Jesus' teaching this morning, my encouragement to you is that you wouldn't allow Jesus' words to pass you by, for some, it is to set your faith upon Christ, maybe for the first time, as the only possible means by which you would have any kind of mastery of your emotions, any kind of mastery over your tendency to anger. For others, it is a very practical step. If you know That a pattern of anger is in your life, in whatever domain of your existence. If anger is present, you need to bring it out into the light. Make war on that sin by bringing it out and exposing it for what it is. Tell someone so that you wouldn't succumb to anger but that you would be one who pursues peace with zeal and urgency. Let's pray now to close. Father, as we think about Jesus's words, we see just how challenging they would have been to his original hearers, how challenging they really are to us today. It is not a case of merely conforming to the law in an external sense that honors you, but rather there is a heart issue. And in this case, that issue is one of anger. Sometimes a low level murmuring in our hearts, sometimes given to explosive behavior. It is always rooted in pride and it is always destructive. We marvel at the righteous anger that you show us in your word from you, the Father, and in Jesus' ministry. We know how often our anger is covered and saturated in sin, and we confess it today. That you would forgive us for our anger. As Christians, our righteousness begins with your Son. It is only by virtue of the gospel that it can be a greater righteousness in quality. Not quantity, but the essence of our righteousness is one that is propelled by faith in Christ, love for him. And so as we seek to be obedient to Christ's teaching here, would you further instruct our hearts concerning just how vast is your love for us, how we were objects of your righteous anger. But now we need not fear your wrath. We know only your love. That is the grounds upon which we obey this word. And very practically, I do pray that you would give us the strength to be peacemakers to make war on anger in our own lives, to make war on anger where we see it in others. May we be diligent to obey the illustrations Christ gives when we're aware of having caused an offense, that we're the cause of anger in someone else's heart. May we go quickly, with urgency. May we prioritize a a peacemaking presence in the lives of others. May we seek to be reconciled that they would not be given to anger. Father, if there are any relationships represented here this morning that must be reconciled, if there is anger ongoing, not dealt with, either personally or relationally represented here this morning, I pray that you would convict and you would encourage towards obedience. That we would truly be marked by peace. That we would be peacemakers and we would know the immense joy that comes from obedience to your word. We love you. We commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen.